Welcome to A Little Louder Now, a podcast produced by The Bridge Initiative, an FI360 project. I'm Robbie Bristow. This month, Tara and I had the pleasure of having a fun and engaging discussion with Courtney Shipley, founder and chief planologist at Retirement Planology. I met Courtney a few years ago, and one thing you immediately learn about Courtney is that she is armed with endless intelligence and a great sense of humor. As a self-described member of the Oregon Trail generation, Courtney's journey from her education in music performance to running her own fiduciary advisory practice is a unique one. In the episode, Courtney tells Tara and I about her embrace of fiduciary practices while still leveraging her creative side. Courtney also plays a game with us at the end of the episode that you won't want to miss. Let's get to it. Here is this month's A Little Louder Now episode with Courtney Shipley. So I, I do think it's an interesting time to um, consume you know, content because we have so many options. And I like that, you know, so many of them are intertwined with each other. So you have the choice. It's almost like a choose your own adventure just within a a Mm -hmm. digital article, which is really quite fascinating. So I think that is a very good segue into uh, our discussion uh, around your background, Courtney, and how you ended up in the financial services world, because I've Spend some time that, you know, you had some blog posts out on your LinkedIn and I've, I've known you for a few years and understand, you know, what you've tried to do with your brand mm-hmm. and retirement planology. And I think that the idea of, you know, telling a story and choosing your own adventure <laughs> and going through all that very similar mm-hmm. to yep. retirement, I think, which I don't, maybe that's a cheesy segue. <laughs> I don't know. But it's very. I, I look at that as a very similar uh, metaphor for you know what it's like to be an individual going through retirement and figuring out what you're going to do and all this stuff is happening to you and how do you plan and make good decisions. So before we dig into you know some of the the details around what you're doing at Retirement Planology and and your firm today, I really would like to know because I think everyone's story is very unique. How you ended up in the world <laughs> of financial services. And what has kept you in the world of financial services, maybe? So start wherever you'd like, but I, I think that would be a good place to, to well, start. Well, I have our discussion a really today. useful um, music performance major degree from Vanderbilt University. Uh, so I graduated and um, didn't want to move back in with my parents. <laughs> <laughs> I needed a job. Uh, so I went through the career center. I interviewed for everything. Uh, and the very first place that um, sent me an offer was an insurance company that also sold 403B plans. And so I was like, all right, take it. And then I was offered another job. This is just a side note. Um, and I told them, no, no, I'm good. I, I've got my dream job. And they were like, what's your dream job? And I <laughs> As soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever said in my life. I was like, it's selling insurance. (laughs) Really what I meant was it was just something that would pay. (laughs) So, uh, And I figured I'd continue to to be a musician on the side, which I've pretty uh, successfully done. But um, yeah, so I fell into this this whole situation with financial services. I did not enjoy selling car and house insurance. Um, Definitely didn't want to sell health insurance. And so... The last thing that um, that was left is the 403B plan, and I really enjoyed that part because I was like, everybody can get on board. And the people that we worked with specifically had a pension, and so the 403B was just a, an add-on basically, kind of like you know, a way to retire early or in a different 
different income bracket because you also were able to save alongside the pension. And I just felt like that really resonated with me at the young age of 22. Um, So I looked for jobs that would allow me to just do that. And I moved over to what was at the time Wachovia, I'm sorry, it was Prudential Securities back then and worked for another broker. Um, Got great experience working there. They specialized in retirement plans and were probably 10 years ahead of their time. Um, The only problem was the person in charge had a bit of personal problems. We'll just leave it at that. Super great individual, probably one of the smartest people I've ever met, um, but just couldn't get out of his own way on the personal side. And um, yeah, just substance abuse and other other things along those lines. God rest his soul. He he passed away a few years ago, but he was definitely a wonderful mentor on how to how to run your business and also what to avoid in life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we all learn about, you know, ethics from the unethical. He was never unethical, thankfully, but um it kind of, you know, resonates with that same theme. So, um from there, I went to work for Fortune 500 company. Um, who did record keeping, learned all of the system side of things, uh, got exposure to how it really works on the back end. So uh, I knew about the brokering side, but the the back end of the plan design and everything else that goes along with that. And then uh, my job there was basically to be the enrollment person, um, enrollment and education specialist. And so I worked really hard in trying to figure out how to best communicate the message to folks. They had great training programs, but I became a little bit obsessed with how do we, what can I say that will help catch a person's attention? Because the word retirement, that's for old people. Nobody thinks about that. So what else do we do? What do we say in this message to make this easy and to make it so that people want to get involved with it without having to be experts from the starting moment they fill out their enrollment form? Um, What can they do to dip their toe in? And so that was a, a super fun job for about four years or so. Um, and then came the uh, the financial crisis. And I felt uh, so sad because I was handing out tissues left and right. And people were like, I lost money. I lost money. I lost money. And I'm thinking I did too. It's going to come back. I got into this business in 2001 when it was terrible. It'll be okay. But I was just so worn out um, at that point in time from counseling people uh, every day, all day. And I really wanted to sleep in my bed. I was kind of done traveling. So I took a job at a small um, third-party administration firm um, that also had an affiliated broker-dealer in RIA. <clears throat> um, it was great. Was in charge of the sales and marketing, trying to leverage the relationships that we had in-house and out-of-house to get folks to um, to sell our product, which was basically something that would compete with the other payroll companies because we had that in-house too. Um, and unfortunately, I never made my my one-year anniversary, the firm was shut down uh, because the owner had a Ponzi scheme going on the broker-dealer side. Oh, wow. So yeah, it was not fun. (laughs) By that point, like, okay, I've had, you know, some questionable bosses at this point. Um, (laughs) Do you want to just go ahead and put it out there that the Fortune 500 one was not one of those? She was great. (laughs) But all the others kind of left something to be desired, to say the least. Uh, So I uh, looked around for a job um, and there was nothing available except another education position out of some firm I'd never heard of in another state. And I was like, I'm not moving. Um, not now. <laughs> I can't sell my condo in this this real estate meltdown. So um, 
right at that same time, I got a call from an old client that was that I'd been calling on because I kept my licenses the whole time. And they said, we're ready for you to be our, our um, advisor. And I was like, oh, uh, okay, <laughs> I've got some paperwork to file. Let me get back to you. So I searched around for other um, other firms to join really fast. I had a bunch of interviews. I couldn't find anyone that would let me take on fiduciary responsibility or would just let me do retirement plans, um, which was kind of amazing given the time and where we are now. But uh, yeah, fiduciary was still kind of a dirty word and nobody really understood what that meant or what the liability would be going along with it. So they didn't want any of that. Um, and I didn't want to sell other things like financial planning or annuities or, you know, fill in the blank. And so um, I started my own firm for right, wrong or indifferent. I filed with the state, um, which was really hard because of coming from that other firm. They had lots of questions and wanted to see financials. And I'm sure they were looking at everything. So, um, but yeah, after six months or so, I finally uh, was declared good to go. <laughs> so that's how I got started. And here we are. <laughs> Obviously, we are huge proponents of the fiduciary standard. But, um, you know, I want to know from somebody who's kind of experienced different, di- you know, different aspects of this business along the way, what it is about operating as a fiduciary that's most attractive to you like that uh, that obviously was a big catalyst for you kind of stepping out on your own right it sounds like that was a big part of it so what is it that's attractive yeah. about it for you so that and the the lack of someone else pressuring me to sell their products those yeah. those were the two things that really drove me and i guess from the fiduciary side it's just so much easier to do the right thing by the client um you're never tied to what what does the firm have a selling agreement with, or um, you know, what are the constraints around trying to solve this person's problem with the only five products that we offer, or something along those lines? Mm-hmm. Because in that situation, I feel like uh, I just feel like a lot of times, if if everything, um, you know, everything looks like a nail, and all you have is a hammer, that that expression, um, that you, you get. You, you end up putting people in the wrong thing or you put mm-hmm. companies in a, in a situation that maybe isn't quite ideal. Like it's okay, it's passable, but it's not the ideal. So I wanted to avoid that. And I also wanted to make sure that no one was standing over me saying, you have to sell this much of this type of product or this, um, you know, you can only do business with these particular people because they're the ones that paid us to be on our platform or anything along those lines. I just wanted to be free of conflicts along those those lines and and just be interested in what the client, you know, found important and how we could best serve them. Um, of course, there's the the compensation component too, that it's easier for us to just charge our fee for the advice that we give rather than worrying about who pays what basis point percentage because of the product or platform you put someone on. Um, so at the end of the day, it was for ease and also for, you know, just making sure I could do right by the client. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Obvi- obvi- again, obviously, we're huge proponents yeah. of that. We love to hear that. That's great. Yeah. But that's not to say that there's not a way to survive in other models. It's just that's what mm-hmm. I preferred. Mm-hmm. So do you find that you had mentioned earlier that fiduciary was a dirty word, and I'm not sure how undirty it is these days uh, mm-hmm. for the you know how ubiquitously undirty that word is now. But obviously in light of the attempt to get the the DOL rule through and sort of the what I just have, have always dubbed it a uh, an awakening and enlightenment for 
majorities of people that maybe weren't incredibly familiar with what the delta was between the broker that maybe was offering them financial advice or services versus a fiduciary and what what that relationship meant. Do you find now that when you're engaging with, it could be current clients or any prospects, do you find that there's a better understanding of what that really means to have a fiduciary relationship with your advisor? Or do you think that there is still um, a knowledge gap that that persists? As much as I hate to say it, I do think there's still a knowledge gap that persists. I think that our clients know the difference, but I don't think they all started knowing the difference before they became our clients. Um, that's part of the process of explaining. You know, we don't just give you a letter that you send to the record keeper so you can change your broker of record. We actually have a contract that has all these services in it, and we're going to abide by them <laughs> and make sure you get the proper deliverables. This is what happens in uh, these types of situations, um, you know, things that really spell out like what we're actually doing. And so I think that it's a happy surprise for most of the clients that we bring on uh, that they know exactly what kind of services that we're offering and what standards we're held to for each of those services, whereas it's pretty murky out there otherwise. Um, but I do think that there's still a knowledge gap that that exists. And I think that you know, the fiduciary standard was a, a, a good eye opener. Um, but when it failed <laughs> to go through, I, you know, I think that the best interest contact contract has um, um, kind of muddied the waters or the new best interest, excuse me, SEC definition. So I, I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure where we're going from here, but I think it's at least got people thinking about what am I paying for? Am I paying for a product and I'm getting advice as an ancillary part of it? Or am I paying for advice and then they're helping me um, figure out how to best fulfill the solution with products and services that are available out there? Does that answer your question? It does. I, I've, I've found, you know, in my own uh, personal experience where people, and I'm sure Tara encounters this all the time that are like, what is FI 360? What do you do for your day? Cause I have no idea what that company is. <laughs> nice. I tend to get on my soapbox real quick and, you know, put my, I'm not an advisor, but I know stuff hat on I'm like, well, here's what you should know about a fiduciary and who you're getting your financial advice from. And, you know, do my, do my pitch to hype up fiduciary. But I do find that, and, and it's not so much that I think people have a working knowledge of the fiduciary rule that didn't go through or what, you know, the fine print really means around fiduciary relationships. But I do think that people are more weary of getting screwed over. I don't, I don't know if that's the, yeah. you know, the way you want to pitch it, but I feel like people, obviously when you've got a market that has been on a tear as long as it has since the, the dreary days of, of the 0708 recession timeframe. I think that's when people start to get a little lax in being really proactive and how they're managing their investments or how they're looking at what fees they're paying. Um, and I, I don't know if that'll be the next awakening. I mean, I think that at some point there will be some market haircut that occur occurs and that's going to wake folks up maybe who have been put on autopilot. Um, but I, I still feel that there has been some semblance of an emergence of people wanting to be 
more aware of what's going on and what they're paying. And I don't know if that's a cultural shift where the availability of tools that you can go log into online and help yourself understand, you know, where your money is going or how you're spending money on investments is helping. So I don't know if that's more of a of a bottom up awakening just in general as people become more, you know, they're able to access that kind of data. But I, I do think that there is um, an improvement in just the willingness to not accept the status quo, maybe as much around financial services. Um, I don't know what, what Courtney or uh, Tara, you think about that. Well, I'll hop in. I, I think that like anything, price is always an issue in the absence of value. And I think people are becoming more aware of what it means to get value from a financial services relationship. And so they're paying more attention to what they're paying for. Um, I think there's been a lot in the news about fees and fee compression, quite frankly, especially in the 401k space. And I think that it's um, not necessarily a bad thing. I think companies needed to take a hard look at what they were doing because you know, these plans do fall under ERISA, which is inherently fiduciary. So therefore, you know, why aren't you spending your company's money and your employees' money in the best way possible and really taking a look at what services you're getting um, in return? So from that standpoint, I think it's been a really good awakening. Um, I We don't deal in personal financial planning, so it's hard for me to say what the individual market looks like. But I will say just in education meetings in general, people do ask, like, what should I be looking for in a financial advisor? Um, and I think they're starting to realize that the days of financial professionals, you know, the flavors have changed pretty, pretty significantly. It's no longer someone calling you on the phone to buy municipal bonds, you know, like back in the 80s, or it's uh, not a stockbroker necessarily. Um, now there's somebody who's uh, maybe a certified financial planner um, who's going to be looking at your comprehensive financial plan. For others, it's just, you know, who do I need to build my bond ladder or my mutual fund strategy? So I think that there's been more of an awakening on that as far as just figuring out what the different flavors of things that are available are and who do they work for and what standard do they operate under. Um, there's definitely nothing wrong with filling somebody's need with a product as long as that's the best for them. Um, but you have to understand too that you may be getting advice that's coming from someone with a viewpoint who's not necessarily trying to screw you over or anything along those lines, but their viewpoint is so narrow just because of the educational background they have in financial services or from the products that they sell or how they can make money. So I think the news has done a great job putting that out there, especially with the emphasis on fees, um, because it does give me the opportunity at least to talk to a client about, well, here are all the moving parts and here's what we're doing for you. So for what that's worth, you know, I'll, I'll give that a thumbs up. Yeah, I think that people might not know uh, what moniker to give it. They don't might not necessarily know that uh, fiduciary is the word that they're grasping for. But I, I echo both of your sentiments that people are more aware, they're more price conscious. I think that um, while people tend to dismiss the millennial generation as you know young and naive and eating avocado toast all day every day, <laughs> I think that they people tend to forget that the millennial generation is actually in their mid to late thirties on the upper end. And so these people are very much aware of, um, you know, the impact that um, bad advice could have on their their situation. And I do think that even if they aren't considering 
um, whether or not an advisor they're interviewing is a fiduciary, they are very much concerned about how much money they're spending on student loans, that they can't afford housing, um, that, that their, their wallets are very tight. And so they're asking probably more questions than even, you know, my generation, Generation X did. Um, you know, we just assumed when you participated in something or you had a financial advisor that it, of course, they're doing what they're supposed to do for you with considerations for all the things that might work for you. Like, why, why wouldn't they? Isn't that, isn't that what they're there for? So I do think that more questions are being asked. I'm not quite sure what the catalyst is, but it sounds like it's probably a, um, you know, a bunch of things kind of coming together and prompting more people to ask more questions and understand their finances better. Um, you know, I was always very nervous about money. I st- money still makes me nervous, even though I know I'm doing all of the right things. Conversations around money are always very, I'm always very uneasy about them. It's always uncomfortable. Um, I think that we're starting hopefully to shift away from that kind of taboo around discussions about money to be more open about it so that we understand these things better. I don't think that you should um, be a participant in the financial services industry to understand what's going on and the structures around um, the different institutions that you could participate in. So hopefully we're seeing a shift um, and it's one that'll stick because I think it's really important um, that people at a younger age understand what's going on with their money better and aren't afraid to ask more questions about things that they're just not aware of. Yeah, two things come to mind when you're talking about that. One is um, one is kind of this leverage of technology that I think the millennial generation in particular is very comfortable with. I'm I'm on the cusp between a Gen X and a, a millennial, so I like to say I'm part of the Oregon Trail generation. <laughs> yes. We're the ones that uh, right, think we're entitled. Yeah, we, we think we're entitled to an answer when we ask a question, but we already know we're not going to like the answer. Um, kind of like you know you're going to play this fun game, but everybody dies of dysentery. Um, anyway, so <laughs> uh, I think that the reliance on technology uh, and and this uh, shift towards it. Uh, has given given millennials in particular a mindset of saying, well, why does the problem have to be solved that way? Um, which I think that baby boomers are uncomfortable with. I think some Gen Xers are too, because uh, it's a little bit outside the frame of what we're what we know. But when you take a step back and you're trying to talk about software design, I know Robbie, you and I have talked about this in the past. You know, when you're asking questions to come to how can we program this solution around it, sometimes you're asking things that are all the way around. Um, my assumptions of how this problem should be solved. Um, and so as somebody being interviewed for how can I solve this problem uh, for you and me trying to give the information, I'm like, no, no, you're not listening. I think it needs to be done this way. And that's the whole point, right? Is to design technological things around um, to solve it in a different way, perhaps, than we've thought about doing it on our own. Um, and the other thing that came to mind too um, along those lines is, you know, with 401k plans in particular, we've seen an emergence of some of the newer record keeping systems um, and folks saying, well, you know, they're venture capital backed. And so they're very excited about being able to solve these problems and uh, don't quite have a grasp on how the rules are not as clear cut as they they think they are, that they think they can be programmed. And so it's interesting 
from the interception of human plus AI, like where that is, what the overlap is. And for financial advice, you know, they talk about the robo advisors a lot. And some advisors are, are very scared by this and others are like, no, it's just something that I'm going to be able to leverage to enhance my offering. And so um, those two intersections there, I think, were brought about by the millennial generation for sure in their shopping um, patterns and habits and the way that they approach problems in general. So from that, I really like that, but it has definitely turned financial services on its head and made us have to talk even more about how where the human element comes in and why it's important. Mm -hmm. Completely agree. I think that as, as an almost elder millennial, uh, that, you know, I think there's a misconception and this is, you know, borrowing from Tara's point that I, I see the headlines all the time. You know, uh, millennials are living in their parents' basement. They like can't pay their bills. They're not making money. And while that's a true and real statistic, there are a lot of millennials that have fortunately found career paths and situations that are allowing them to begin to accumulate wealth, get married, purchase a home, go through the cadences of trying to figure out their financial life from scratch and what's important and what isn't. And the technology solutions that are out there now that I think have been significantly important in evolving the discussion and the uh, availability of information around financial services has also led in my own experience and, and talking with friends of mine who are you know in the same age bracket that there's easy paths to go out and say, you know, if I want to invest, then I can find an application to support that. If I have a few questions, Google will help me fly, find good blog posts and give me a general direction. But I have found in, in my personal life that when I have the, there's a, a lack of really clear direction on some of the basics where I think, you know, there's not a whole lot of financial education that happens in anyone's high school or elementary school career path, uh, educational path where you're understanding how do you open a bank account? What mix of credit cards or, 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 you know, different debt investments is going to help, uh, you know, make your credit score as good as it could be, or how do you, uh, what's the right path to get a mortgage and, you know, what is the right down payment? Those basic things, I think there's a lack of just clear, good information out available. There's a lot of mixed answers on it on the internet, which creates confusion. And then for the really complicated questions when, okay, my wife and I just combined our finances. We bought a house. We're donating money. We have an HSA. We're trying to maybe save money for other smaller humans we create at some point. What do we do? That's another thing mm -hmm. that an app can't solve. I can't head into uh, a robo-advisor and have that computer help answer those questions. They can get close but it's tough without the human element. Yeah, and definitely. I think that there's a dis there's a distrust for me personally or my generation for the brick and mortar um, advisory shops that are out there potentially. Um, I won't mention brand names, but I could go in and talk to somebody and they might be likely a broker and who knows what kind of things are going to sell me or what advice I'll get. So where do you think or what's your opinion on maybe where the gaps are in the world of technology and where human interaction or maybe a different value proposition from financial advisors can help recapture that market that maybe thinks I have to go to technology first. I don't want to talk to a person. Right. How do advisors change that to change the perception around their advice and the value that they can provide? 
Oh man. I don't know that we can change that. Yeah. Um, there's a book written by Dan Pink called To Sell as Human, and I love this book. It talks about how the salesman of the future is not someone who has um, who has like the best uh, answers to your objections anymore, right? <laughs> or it's not the person with all the information in some cases. It's the person that creates the clarity. They're clarifying the problem, and then they're clarifying the possible solutions for where you go next. The example that he gave was um, was a, a vacuum cleaner situation where they think they might need a new vacuum cleaner, but when you take a step back and you're like, well, what's really the problem? And the problem is that there's a lot of dust in their house. You know, the the possible solutions, I mean, yeah, you could buy the vacuum cleaner, but it might be that your windows need to be replaced. They're letting in dirt from the street. You live on a busy street, or it could be that your HVAC system needs to be cleaned out or it may be replaced. Like there's all these different options uh, that could actually be causing your problem. And so our um, our access to information is amazing, right? You can get on and Google anything, but you might be trying to solve the wrong problem. And so that's what I think is the um, the main issue for advisors of the future. That and the fact that everything has gotten so complicated. I mean, if you list, you just listed off a, a, a huge number of things, right? You talked about credit score. You talked about managing debt. You talked about uh, college planning or education planning, mortgage, like all the things that you listed off just in your your short, um, you know, couple of seconds there, Robbie. And that's something else that is that has changed over time. There are so many more financial products available. There are so many more uh, companies offering them, and there are so many more situations that you could use them in. And so because life has gotten so complicated, at a certain point, I think now the buying decision is made based on when you've exhausted your um, attention span and your willingness to try to solve the problem yourself. And if more advisors can position themselves as somebody who can not only clarify that problem, but also see around the corners for the things that you're not anticipating next, that's where that's where they succeed. And that's why certain advisors do a lot better than others, in my opinion. I mean, if we just think about like the history of the 401k, Back in late 80s, you'd probably go to your bank to set up your trust account. You'd go to an attorney to get your document. Um, and then there might be some mutual funds that you're able to put in there. Everything was, uh, what, valued quarterly maybe. Um, there wasn't this ability to go online and look at your account every day, for heaven's sake, or call an 800 number and get an answer about your account. And so today, I say that um, our firm, we're, we're systems analysts, right? We have all of these different ways we can solve this problem for your company of how to get people to retirement. There's all kinds of different inputs uh, now than there ever were. And people on the other side of it, the employees are using these accounts in radically different ways. I mean, you have the financial independence, retire early crowd who wants to save themselves into retirement through a life of frugality and be done early. You have others who want to continue working past age 70 because they love their job and they love the community that they work within and want to have purpose. And so now you've got a different consumer on both ends of that equation. So I think that it all comes back to that clarity and billing yourself as someone who can not only solve the problem, but clarify what on earth the problem even is. Yeah, I think that absolutely. I, I, that's a great answer for a very challenging question, by the way. 
the <laughs> I think you know in my experience a lot of the uh, ways that this has shifted for people in general I'm you know I can speak as a millennial but people in general is everyone wants to be doing the right thing and with access to information it's the information overload it's it's hard to filter signal versus noise when you're looking up a problem it's like going to webmd you know i'm you can be suggested that there's a hundred things wrong with you but to your point trying to figure out what Normally is the actual it's you're dying right yeah, <laughs> you're, dead. Cancer. you're already dead yeah. so sorry you right. know it's, <laughs> oh we're sorry to inform you you have dysentery and, and you're dead. So, <laughs> so just you're good right well, you're kind of thank, you for, thank you for visiting webmd <laughs> yeah. yeah swollen thumb of yours is a real problem <laughs> right yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's uh, that the way that you're describing that process of uh, the book, you talking about, you know, the, the different problems that, that could be the cause. That's um, I've been doing a little bit of reading on design thinking and there's challenges in in businesses, big industry where you end up in these conventional ways of thinking that we we solve this problem this way. This is how things have been done. This is how my papa did it and his papa before right. him. And this is how we're going to solve these problems and design thinking or, or flipping that on its head is, you know, you remove those typical conventions so that you can facilitate new and innovative solutions that maybe more appropriately solve a problem or do it in a way that is more efficient or, or whatever it might be. Um, but with that vehicle of innovation, I think sometimes everyone's just striving to create a better experience for the user for, you know, they, they want uh, a better way to engage people that are visiting their website or looking at their services or consuming their content and the digital storefront, while it's incredibly important in my current financial situation in my life, I'm at that precipice where it's almost the antithesis of how I feel about everything in, in the world in terms of business. I sort of want to move away from technology a little bit and I want a person. And I think that's a weird <laughs> evolution that happens where you go around the sun, you know, and I'm like, oh, technology, technology. You know, I'd really like to talk to a person, but I really want there to be value and the money that I'm spending. And I think that's just a normal evolution of, of you know, getting older and, and having had bad things and good things happen to you financially and you've learned a few lessons. But that idea of trying to solve your problem it gets to a point where sometimes you just want something curated for you right. and have someone intelligent be able to help guide you on the right path. Um, Cause everybody's different to your point. You know, there are people who want to retire immediately. And then in my opinion, there's people that want to live their life a little bit and also retire at some point, but not just stash every dollar away, but every, you know, everyone fits in those different personas. So I, I think that when it comes to that, shift back to talking to people for financial advice. Um, I think that there's an opportunity, in my opinion, to find that blend between technology and people, which I think 401k advisors and record keepers and people in the industry are, are trying to do. Mm -hmm. But I, it's a challenge because that is really, to me, the perfect model is how do you blend both of those together the right way? Because I feel like it's very binary or it's very uh, hyperbolic um, where it's, we we do all technology and that's our whole thing or we're very people oriented and that's our whole thing <laughs> and yep you know i feel like people fall into those two camps maybe and, and maybe i'm generalizing but i feel like that's where 
it feels like it is a lot of the time is that people are, are very much on, on polar opposites and finding that middle is yeah. difficult. I would agree. So I want to shift gears just real, just for a moment, um, because we're talking a lot about the client and, you know, the makeup of the client. And I'm kind of curious, um, not just about the client side, but about, um, the advisor side. I, I think a lot about, um, sort of my career trajectory and it's very non-traditional and I, I never envisioned myself working in financial services, um, even on the creative side. Um, but I really do love it. I love what we do. And I see, uh, I see really important things happening and, and really important work coming from the people who we serve at FI360. But I am curious how we get more individuals like you, Courtney, and me you know, you were a creative, right? Like you went through college, mm-hmm. assuming that you'd be in a creative career, and then and then you weren't. Um, but it sounds to me like you really love the work that you do. So, you know, from your perspective, what can we do differently as an industry to get more young people intrigued by what we do? Um, because right now, it just seems like you know the perception is that financial services is stodgy that you you don't choose to go into financial services that it's something that you just that just sort of happens to you but i think that there's a real opportunity to show people that you know if you want to do do good for people this is a great place to do that so from your perspective how do we get more people involved that sort of look more like our communities, right? That are diverse and that are young and and not so young and that that kind of look like the people who we're trying to serve and trying to get them earlier in the process. Man, if I could solve this problem. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I will say, I'll say a couple things that come to mind. The first is um, when I was recruited to work at the insurance company, uh, the person who recruited me was someone who said they were looking specifically for musicians and athletes. And when I pressed on why, um, they said it's because uh, they understood the value of self-discipline and they didn't feel like they would have to manage them as closely. And so, um, you know, no one makes you get in the practice room or nobody makes you um, run up and down the field a million times to improve your time. Um so from that aspect, they were looking for people who were driven and who were able to operate with some supervision, but could also um, work on their own. Um, I thought that that was a really interesting thing. And when you sit down and you look at uh, the type of education that I had as a musician um, and where that, how that lines up with the, the skill set that I use every day, there are so many different um, things that are shared or overlapped in some way, shape, or form. The analysis is there, um, the coming together with groups of people to get a final product, um, the self-reliance, the um, you know getting in the practice room and rehearsing and rehearsing, rehearsing, all of that stuff comes through. And so I think one of the first things we could work on is our recruiting practices mm-hmm. um, and looking for people with non-traditional backgrounds, but yet still have those key ingredients or those sale, um, not even those sales skills, the, the key ingredients or the similar skills that it takes to succeed 
in our industry and making sure that they get to the right place, you know, having the the right people on the on the right bus, right? And so I think that's the first way we could go about it is to look a little bit more non-traditionally instead of people who love math um, or who are immediately drawn to um, financial services because they think it, they could make a lot of money or something along those lines, or it's because they look like us or act like us. So mm-hmm. that would be number one, recruiting practices for people who um, are able to pull others into their practice. And then I think the other thing too um, that we as an industry are doing a lot better at uh, is the visibility aspect. Um, I came through as a trumpet performance major and that is not a female dominated profession. Right. Yeah. <laughs> at all. And I remember the first time hearing about uh, there's a, a handful of professional um, trumpet players who are women, and hearing about them was just like, oh, wow, what is she like? <laughs> there is one. There's somebody that looks like me. Um, and, you know, just having that be something that was attainable. Um, because I saw somebody else do it was really important. And, you know, for a long time, I poo-pooed some of the, the um, you know, women advisor awards and things like that, because I'm like, why do we have to have our own category? It's like, we're, we're not good enough to be in the overall big award. So they got to give us this little side award. But the fact of the matter is that, uh, as someone in my um, co-working space pointed out years ago, you've got to make sure that you put that everywhere you can, because other other girls and other young ladies like you need to know that it's possible because you don't even think about things that aren't possible. And I was like, all right, sounds good. So I I got on board with that. And I think that we need to continue doing that and need to give visibility to, to women, to minorities, to, you know, people who are not um, your typical advisor. So what is that age 50 plus white male, I guess, Um, give them a little time on the stage as well to show that, People look different and they've got different things to offer. You're like the Lizzo of financial services. <laughs> that might be the coolest title that anyone could have right now. <laughs> well, uh, Courtney, do you feel like you still get to be creative in your work? Oh, yeah, all the time. Um, how do I say this? I had a, a friend who was a screenwriter and um, they talked about the constraints on writing a good narrative or a certain type of um, a certain type of screenplay and how you had to have these elemental parts to it um, or else it just wasn't as complete. And um, the, there was a richness in that um, in that set of rules that really did give you a whole lot of creativity um, on ways to push the boundaries within it. And because of that, you know, you ended up oftentimes with a fantastic product, even though you may resent the fact that there's all these rules about how things should be or have to be. And so I, I kind of thrive within that, I think, within the retirement plan space, because there's all of these different constraints that you have on your business. There's all these different ways that vendors will come at you and try to spend your dollars for you. And I can tell you right now, that happens to me all the time, every day, all day long. Uh, somebody's coming at my wallet with a crowbar. So <laughs> as a business owner, you've got all these solutions you're trying to find uh, that cost the least amount of money, right? And the retirement plan, unfortunately, falls into that bucket. And it's like, I don't know, I think it, I heard it was 50th on an HR person's list or something. <laughs> um, 
So having to work within those constraints and try to get the best thing out of the retirement plan to do whatever it was it was supposed to do, whether that's get people to retirement or have a way for the, the company to give back to their employees, make them feel like they're they have more ownership of their jobs or um, you know, be competitive so they can get those that good talent, whatever that might be for them. There's all these rules around it, and I feel like uh, I just have a really fun time being able to be creative within those rules and figuring out the best way to solve the problem. Um, the other thing too is the um, the fact that I do read and interact with a lot of media and people that are outside of the financial services industry. It helps me connect dots in really bizarre ways sometimes, <laughs> but I, I can't tell you the number of times I've borrowed from other industries on the way that they approach things or they or, um you know, a different method of doing something that came from another place. And so I think that from an innovative standpoint, we've been able to do a lot. We were using video a long time ago, for example. Um, some of the other, I don't know, I guess more innovative things came out of of that just because I'm not married just to financial services and I have had a, a, a pretty incredible background and in other things. So there's that. <laughs> I don't know what that counts for, but... Um, yeah, I, I do feel like I get to be creative, um, whether it's just viewing things through a different lens or, or working within those constraints. So, yeah. That's great. Do you find that the creative side of the business is, you know, the counterbalance to the regimented things that come with being a 401k advisor. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, the numbers don't lie, right? <laughs> <laughs> There's, <laughs> there is, there are constraints around what the market can do. It is not magic. It cannot, um, right. you know, <laughs> if you undersave, there is no amount of market performance that's going to help you in many cases. Um, or if uh, you just don't want to save anything for retirement and hope to magically retire someday, that's not going to work out either. So I would say that, yeah, there's still a lot of, um, a lot of parts where the math has to, has to make sense. Um, <laughs> but because, I mean, I didn't love math. I do now, but I, I certainly didn't when I was coming along. Um, I find that being able to, to introduce people to it in a, um, non-threatening way. It's like, we've already done the math for you here. Let me help you. Here's some pictures and graphs yes. <laughs> or here's a different way to look at that. Uh, or here's the data, but presented in a pictorial graph. Um, being able to help people look at it that way, even if it's just hand-drawn and crude on a post-it note, um, I think that really helps too. It's just providing that overlay of another way of thinking about the same thing rather than walking somebody through the equation. So, yeah. <laughs> it's... I, I think that that's exactly the right way to put it is that the the storytelling mechanic of something that can be as uh, not exciting as what is your savings rate for your household and trying to help people out with those sort of problems. It's, sure. it's where you could be like, hey, you're way off track for your retirement savings. And so if you're planning to live to be 130, this will work out. Right. <laughs> But if it's in the form of a narrative of, well, here is Joe and Jill in the same situation as you, and they didn't live to 130, but figured it out. So here's a fun narrative to position <laughs> this differently and make you think the world is not falling around you. And so right. I think that's an important point. You know, the reason I had asked if it's enjoyable, because I think it's an important element of this industry, financial services as a whole, is that a lot of where I think people maybe have just not tuned in 
or look at it as sort of an afterthought uh, component of, of their life is that if you have engaging and interesting and uh, really compelling content and graphics and ways that you present the information mm-hmm. can be really effective in changing people's interest as, as much as just their understanding of the issue, because that can be the, the whole challenge is just understanding the problem. And mm-hmm. when you're looking at a case study or you're looking at an article in your newspaper or on on uh, the internet or you get a push notification, push notifications are my favorite one where it's like, hey, you should do this now or you'll lose all your money. It's like, oh my God, I got to push this. Tap it. <laughs> urgent, uh, urgent. Yeah. But then you read it and you're like, oh, I didn't learn anything. And this is, you know, I, it's like, right. darn it, clickbait. You got me again. <laughs> yeah. Dang, not again. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are still afraid of the monsters under their bed. You know, it's just easier to try to leave them under there mm-hmm. and <laughs> put the bed skirt over them and hide under the covers than it is to deal with it because money is so strangely tied to psychology mm-hmm. and people's thoughts about how they feel about their money control them just as much as, you know, the actual balance that's in their, their account for, you know, their checking account. So we've certainly had, to retirement. certainly had circumstances just personally where, you know, my husband and I don't talk about money. We don't talk about how much we make, you know, outside of our private conversations with one another. We don't share those things even with our parents really. And we've had circumstances with friends who have clearly had a perception of what our statuses or salaries or whatever that is based on the work that we we do versus what they do, right? So like uh, we had a friend who was a contractor. He he had his own business. He's a very successful person and very creative in the work that he does. And for whatever reason, there was always this kind of roadblock for him in a perception that he was trying to keep up with everybody else around him based solely on the work that he did compared to everybody else who was in an office wearing, you know, button ups. Um, so I think that that just, it's just a very micro example of what you're talking about, that people are afraid of where they are for lots of different reasons. There's, mm-hmm. am I going to hit that target when I, um, when I do want to retire? And there's also this perception that maybe they're not where they're supposed to be based on how old they are or the social circle that they run around in. And I just, I want people to learn to drop that, right? Like if that does not serve you in any way, where are you today? Where do you want to be tomorrow? What are the steps that you need to take to get there? That's really all that should matter, not the things that are going on around you. And money is just a tool, right? I mean, it's a reflection of your values in some cases. Uh, What you find valuable uh, is typically where you spend your money. Um, And so it all comes back to just being intentional about that. And so Mm -hmm. That's why you get the millionaires next door, uh, if you've read any of the books in that series, who they don't buy a new car because that's not where they see the value. Um, But to some people, maybe that is valuable. Um, So I think as long as we're all, in a way, kind of living our best life from that aspect of things, we're not feeling bad about how we're spending our money. We know where it's going, and it is a reflection of our values and what we want to get out of it, then that's okay for everybody, uh, whatever that looks like. The problem that I see is where people kind of shove things aside. Oh, I've got mountains of debt. I don't know how much it is. I don't know where my money's going. Uh, I don't have anything like a budget, budgets don't work. Um, things along those lines, when I hear that, then I know there's probably a deeper problem here um, where they just rather 
it feels better not to deal with the problem than it does to try to to make it right. And it rarely has anything to do with how much money they make, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. It's normally just incongruence with where they've spent it or um, you know, feeling like they don't have a handle on it because they're just afraid that they don't have enough or whatever the case might be. Um, I did want to ask you, Courtney, about, uh, so you had mentioned some of your um, previous bosses and, you know, lessons learned, positive and negative. Um, I I wanted to know from you, particularly as a person who owns her own business, you know, what have you learned? What What are the one or two lessons that you've picked up along the way that have really served you throughout your career? <laughs> mm. <laughs> Only the paranoid survive, <laughs> um, especially in a fiduciary environment. Um, Are these tattooed on you somewhere? Or <laughs> I don't know. No. <laughs> I, think actually, I think that's actually stolen from uh, somebody at Intel back in the day. But anyway, um, no, that's a big one. Um, just to make sure you've looked at it from every aspect uh, before you you present to a client or before you you push a product out, um, a work product out, is to make sure that you've you've considered everything from every avenue. And the paranoia needs to exist for that reason. Um, also, um, you know, it's really important to to um, to have teammates who are very different from you and have a different skill set. Uh, I think that most. Um, most managers earlier in their career, um, they, they end up hiring people they like or people who, who are like them. And I think it's important to be very, um, very self-aware of your own limitations, of your own strengths, of the things that you can do that no one else can, and um, be ready to get rid of all those things that you really shouldn't be doing. And just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. So hiring for other skill sets like that is has been totally invaluable. Um, I can't even, the return on investment there is amazing. Um, so that's probably the biggest thing. I was, I was in the wrong job um, in a couple of situations, or I was given the wrong tasks to do, let me say it that way, um, not because they didn't need to be done, but because I was not the right person to fill that slot um, and did so very inefficiently. And I can tell you that now, you know, I got the work mm-hmm. done, but <laughs> um, it, it sucked mm-hmm. the life out of me, that's for sure. So <laughs> I, I try to remember that um, whenever I'm working with somebody else that want to make sure that A, we're speaking in a language they can understand and B, that they're getting work handed to them that they are excited about doing and and um, can operate in their highest skill set as well. Um, so those are probably the two most valuable things, I think. Yeah. Yeah. When you're working with people, so you, you talk about hiring and, and working with people, are there, I think about emotional intelligence, right? It's not often talked about, mm-hmm. um, but I'm, I'm just curious, like how much do you rely on some of your emotional intelligence? You know, when you're working with somebody a shift in their, you know, in their uh, demeanor, even a, a subtle one. Do you pick up on those cues? Like, what are the, what are the things that kind of trigger you to dig a little deeper if somebody is having some trouble, um, rather than just dismissing it as like, oh, they're they hate their work and they're not they're not performing at their best. Yeah, sure. So, um, I've tried to foster a team that's built around the disc profile, um, so that everybody knows what everyone else's profile is. 
that actually helps a lot just from the standpoint of, you know, how that person will handle conflict typically, um, or, you know, um, you know, what types of things you probably shouldn't be asking certain people to do. So that's kind of a, a cheat sheet, if you will, upfront. Um, and yeah, I do rely a lot on the emotional intelligence, but a lot of times it does play back into that, that disc profile, knowing that, um, perhaps one member on the team is uh, going for pre- perfection every single time, and I have to give them permission to give me a half-finished product or um, in setting it up in that way so they feel good about it. Or knowing that this person really doesn't like conflict. Um, usually you know that before they take the disc profile, but um, they don't like conflict, so you have to make sure that you give them permission to disagree with you um, or whatever, however they can take that as permission, I guess. That's not really a nice word, I guess, in this context, but just letting them know that it's okay to disagree. And in fact, if you don't, then that will be at the detriment of the client. So going back to that, you know, only the paranoid survive, you've got to look at things from a variety of different perspectives. And so by having those perspectives around you and being able to make it a nice place for conflict to happen um, or discussion uh, or Uh, teasing out the right answer, uh, making that comfortable for everybody and making that environment a welcoming one um, is is truly important in in my book. And so, yeah, emotional intelligence, I think, definitely plays into it. Um, But I think for people who, you know, maybe are less emotionally aware, and there are some profiles that are, and that's that's okay, they serve a purpose too. Um, Having something like a tool like the DISC profile or some of the other personality profiles that are out there to lean on and leverage, I think is very useful. Mm-hmm. That's great. Did you read Outliers by um, Gladwell, Malcolm Gladwell? So I have not. Well, it talked about one guy who was instrumental in helping figure out how to better treat childhood cancer. And it goes mm-hmm. through his entire life where his mother was basically kind of taken away from him because um, it was his nanny, his mother. I can't remember if she died or what happened, but anyway. Long story short, this guy had a really traumatic upbringing and he just did not have, he seemed to be just lacking the empathy. And so for the things that needed to take place in giving these children shots and doing whatever else, the treatments that they needed to do, it would it would have only been him um, who could have really fulfilled that role. Um, he was just so perfectly suited for it. And so I think that a lot of times we get caught up with that whole emotional intelligence thing that you have to have a good EQ, you have to have this, you have to have that to be a good leader or a successful person or whatever else. And I think, again, it comes back to using your unique profile and your unique strengths um, and weaknesses, quite frankly, and harnessing all of that in order to get the best work product. So not being married to the traditional ideas of you must have this in order to do that. Yeah, I love that. I love that. You and, and every, we've talked about this. Everybody's different, right? In their financial situation, they're different, and the way that they approach um, situations, both in work and personal lives, um, is all very different. So I I love that you're taking it even a step further beyond like, oh, have good emotional intelligence or um, IQ. Like you really just need to recognize. It's really more being in tune with yourself. Mm-hmm. And understanding who you are and how you approach situation situations and um, and knowing your strengths and weaknesses, I think that's fantastic. yeah. You didn't ask me the key to leadership, which was I was wondering if that was going to come up at some point, but I really think that that's it. I think self awareness <laughs> is the the most important thing you could possibly do. Just knowing your own limitations as well as your own strengths, really getting cozy with yeah. all of it. <laughs> I I really believe in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe in that, and I believe in. Um, 
always having, always letting people know where you stand, being very clear um, about what your expectations are. If you are a leader or manager, um, being clear about what your expectations are and then delegating tasks accordingly. Um, I feel like if people are unsure about what they're driving toward, then they're not sure about what they're going to deliver to you and whether or not you're going to receive it well. And um, so I do feel like you need to be self-aware and then you also need to be clear and unafraid to be kind of um, bold, I guess. Um, you know, maybe what you need to share with people isn't exactly what they want to hear. But if you say, hey, this is the task that we're driving toward and um, we need to do it together. Here are the milestones that we need to hit. Ready? Any questions? Okay, let's go. Um, it sets everybody up for more success. What was it Brene Brown said? Clear is kind. <laughs> yes. I love that. Yes. <laughs> so we're going to start our new game segment of A Little Louder Now podcast that we are uh, working right. title calling Satiric News. <laughs> All right. Courtney, you are oh, going no. to be our okay. first contestant. Tara will be playing along with <laughs> you. We need to put like you. a clap track in there. So, uh, I never watched the news. This is going to be so hard. <laughs> we'll see what happens. So the, the background, news headlines these days seem to walk the line between real news and satire. We decided to take advantage of the world being crazy and made a game out of it. The way the game works is I will read off a news headline, and it's your job to tell us if it's real news or satire. The articles for news came from actual news websites, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, whatever your flavor is. And the satirical headlines came from The Onion, Reddit, and other satirical news websites. So what I will do is I will read off a question. You can go back and forth, debate. But your objective is to tell me if this is real news or if it's satire. Sound good? <laughs> Let's do yes. it. Okay. So first one. Uber executive says generating revenue, not key to business success. Oh, oh my gosh. That sounds so real, actually. It's so tough. I know. It. I'm telling, it I know. Very Silicon Valley. I'm going to go with true. Okay. Courtney says true. Oh, real boy. news. Real news. Tara? I'm going to go real news. Okay. You're wrong. Oh. That is satire. Oh. <laughs> it felt All so right. real. <laughs> All right. All right. This is fun. Number two. Uh, this was a, uh, it's, it's a news headline. How I write a million words every day. A million? Oh. How yeah. I write a million words every day. I'm going to, it's like C, 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 yeah, C. Right? I'm going to go with that's true. <laughs> Again, I'm going to go right. with fake like news just to be different because yeah. <laughs> I have no okay. idea. It was satire. Courtney oh, gets okay. a point. Oh, oh. A million did feel like a lot, but I was like that texting, was Instagram, <laughs> blog. I know. <laughs> when I read it, I was like, honestly, I could go either way yeah. on this. Yeah. I'm reading the article. Uh, Okay, next news headline. Your cat really does like you, science shows. Ah, true, real news. Yeah, it's going to be true. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Both of Woo! you are correct. Real news. Good job. <laughs> Do cats or, really like anybody? I don't know, science. I feel like I that's know. fake science. It's hard to say. <laughs> real news, fake science. Yep. 
All right. Uh, next question. Forest Ranger in remote part of U.S. actually lost job three years ago. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, this poor person, if it is true. <laughs> no. It's like, what was his name? Milton from the uh, right. office space. Um, excuse me. Excuse me. Um, yes, excuse me. Excuse me. Stapler. <laughs> I'm going to go with, uh, I'm gonna go with, with uh, real news. I'm going fake. Fake news. Tara's going fake news. That was satire. Tara gets a point. And we are totally Uh, tallying these points, right? (laughs) Oh, I have my my cheat of paper out. Someone will win. (laughs) Uh, Next one. Uh, Kale candy canes are here to ruin Christmas. Oh my God, that's got to be true. That's that's the onion. That's got to be fake. Courtney? I think it's real news. It is a real headline. Oh. <laughs> See? Kale, Kale's ruining everything. I know, but again, it when oh, I read that, I was like, that could go on either webpage, yeah. CNN or The Onion. Don't Pick worry. One. They're going to be like, don't worry. It's just massaged kale with the peppermint oil. <laughs> it, it tastes good. It doesn't taste like, you know, exactly. chewing on bark. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We'll do, we'll do two more. All right. KFC fire logs make your home smell like fried chicken. Oh my god. <laughs> fake news. Please, please be fake news. Yeah, I'm going satire. That is so real. Oh, oh my no. god. <laughs> I don't want that to be real. <laughs> no, that just sounds so gross. Okay. Uh, last one. At age 98, Actress Betty White is tired of fake internet death hoaxes. Oh, I don't think she's 100% true. Well, I don't know if she's 98, but she's definitely sick of those, I would think. Uh, I'm going to say it's satire because I think she likes just, she would be the type of person that would say, like, just being alive and people talking about her is good enough. And Courtney, you said real? I said real. It is satire. Oh, yeah. you know what? I just Googled it. She's only 97. Talk <laughs> <laughs> <Dog> on it. <laughs> All right. So that puts us at a tie. So I'm going to do one tiebreaker question. Oh, no. Oh, see man. if maybe you go in the same direction. We'll see what happens. We'll see if someone can win this. Otherwise, you'll have to rock, paper, scissors at the FI360 yeah. conference next year. Perfect. Okay. Uh, man shot by his dog ruled unfit to own guns <laughs> wait the dog is unfit to own guns or no, the man? man 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 shot by his dog ruled unfit to own guns man is ruled unfit oh, boy. i think it's true that sounds very very true that is a real story. Oh, Tara wins by a point. Courtney, Ooh. we appreciate you coming out. Did yeah. you have fun today? I did, but I just couldn't get on board with that last one because if <laughs> you know, I've got a lot of things to prevent my dog from doing already. <laughs> now I have to think about that. It sounds like we have a lot of things to worry about, not the least of which is a KFC fire log. I know. I'm telling you, it took me 20 minutes to find these. It was ridiculous. Wow. It, it was so easy. Easy. Oh my gosh. Uh no, the dog one I thought, you know, when it's time to play fetch, Ugh. it's time to play fetch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh. All right, so that that was fun. Thank you, Courtney, for playing sure, along. Tara, yes. you I you will be our reigning champion for the next episode. We'll see who, whoever comes on next if they can take you down. Good game, Courtney. Good <laughs> yeah, game. good game for sure. <laughs> Before we wrap up things today, I did want to ask if there was a book or a string of books <laughs> that you would like to recommend our <laughs> listeners to go check out. Well... Um, I mentioned a few, but I think the one that I have really enjoyed the most, there's been two. One was Atomic Habits by James Clear, um, talking about habits are formed and trying to um, to harness that in order to improve yourself and change your habits. So I really enjoyed that one. Um, also, there's another one called Messy, The Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives by Tim Harford. And so as somebody who um, chronically piles things up on my desk and Definitely does not have the appearance of being a, a neat and organized person all the time. Um, <laughs> this this one in particular was really great at um, kind of examining how it is that we feel about organization and connecting dots from point A to point B instead um, of seeing the value in the circu- uh, circuitous route, perhaps. And so that that book was great. Um, I can't recommend it enough. So. Yeah, those are probably my two. I'll, I'll leave you with. I could probably list off another hundred, but <laughs> we'll we will have there. you back on again yeah. to give us the other ninety-eight. Okay. <laughs> we had a solid four book mentions that are, are great. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah, <laughs> wonderful. That was awesome. Yeah, very good recommendations. Well, uh, thanks again, Courtney, for joining us today. This has been a lot of thank fun. You. Um, we'll we'll have you back on. Thank you for playing along with our our news headline game and this was a great conversation. So thanks again. Thank you, uh, Thank you for your time. Appreciate I appreciate it. it. Thank you for spending your time with us. Again, this is a little louder now by the Bridge Initiative. A huge thank you to Courtney for joining us for this month's episode. If you have questions, topic ideas or if you'd like to join the Bridge Initiative community, email us at bridge@fi360.com. You can also support the podcast without spending a dime by leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, we want you all to get a little louder now.